You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual So some interesting posters went up on light poles in Ireland last weekend, some Pride Month counter programming. And 10 seconds later, those posters were flying around Twitter. Maybe you saw them. On the poster, on this placard, there's a picture of what appears to be an opposite sex couple on their wedding day. Now, she could be bi and so could he, but we're obviously not supposed to read them as possibly bi because in big block letters right across the top of the poster, it says straight pride. Then in the fine print at the bottom, it's natural. It's worked for thousands of years. And then again in giant type, and you can make babies. All right. Gay sex, also natural. As Alfred Kinsey said, the only unnatural sex act is that which one cannot perform. Gay sex, also been around for thousands of years, millions actually, and gay people. We can make babies too. We're just not going to make them by accident. And when you pause to consider how much time, money, and effort straight people spend trying to avoid making babies by accident, all those condoms, all those pills, all those IUDs, all those abortions, all that anal, the making of babies part looks more like a bug than a feature. I'm hoping this is a massive trolling effort. Actually, obviously, it's a trolling effort, but I have hopes that who's trolling who isn't obvious here. The bride and groom on the poster are superimposed over light pink and blue stripes. It's literally the trans pride flag. So yeah, here's hoping a trans rights group is behind these posters. And this week, we're going to find out the groom is a trans man and the bride is a trans woman and they both identify as straight and they're having a baby and he's the one who's pregnant. In other news, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops took a step toward denying President Joe Biden, a lifelong Catholic, the Eucharist. That's the wafer they pass out at Mass for you non-Catholics out here, which we Catholics actually believe to be the body, the literal flesh of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we wash that flesh down. We eat that flesh. We're kind of zombies that way. And we wash that flesh down with some of his blood, all 1.2 million of us, theoretically, every Sunday. And the Catholic bishops are doing this, trying to prevent Joe Biden from going to Mass, which he's been doing all his life and taking communion, because he supports a woman's right to choose which goes against Catholic teaching. So basically, when Catholic bishops aren't raping kids themselves or covering up for priests who've raped kids or up in Canada, burying the bodies of indigenous children they stole from their families in mass graves, and I'm not making that up, Catholic bishops are slapping the communion wafer out of the mouth of only the second Catholic president in the history of the United States because he supports a woman's right to choose, same as 56% of American Catholics. And all the while doing nothing about all those Catholic Republican elected officials out there who support the death penalty. I suppose by the time someone is old enough to execute, they've aged out. Catholic bishops just aren't interested. And finally, courtesy of Right Wing Watch and just in time for pride, comes this sermon from Louisiana megachurch pastor and COVID-idiot Tony Spell. The world needs to see some manly preachers. There's enough fag, queer, skinny-jeaned, homo-effeminate, 
sissy preachers out there with makeup and mascara on their eyes for the camera? Isn't it about time you get some sweat on your forehead? Isn't it about time you get some dirt under your nails and get some grease on your hands? Isn't it about time you get some blood on your sword? Cursed be the man that keepeth his sword from blood. We need heroes in this hour. Heroes have callous knees. Heroes might get terminated from their jobs. Heroes might get not, not, not get invited to the family reunion. But I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. I don't have much to say about this manly man and his fondness for manly man preachers, except that we all know how this ends. I could go to the trouble of creating a Google alert for Pastor Tony Spell and gay sex scandal, but when Pastor Callous Knees gets caught in a truck stop or a hotel room or a parked car with a married man or a rent boy or a high school wrestling team, I'm not going to need a Google alert to hear about it. We're all going to hear about it because Pastor Spell, he likes to make the news and that will make the news. He made the news during the pandemic. He announced he would be holding large church services at the height of the pandemic, and he did, and he got arrested, and he got fined, which is what he wanted. One of his congregants died, not that he gave a shit. He assaulted a protester with a bus in front of his church, in front of TV cameras, and just last week he got in trouble with the law for harvesting an alligator without possessing a license and tag. The law found out about him harvesting that alligator because he posted a video to his Instagram account of him holding up the dead alligator. This is just one of the gators that live in the lake behind his church where he baptizes people. So yeah, this is a man who likes to tell on himself. That sermon, that wasn't the first time Pastor Spell told on himself. And when the police roll up on the pastor in that truck stop restroom on his callous knees, yeah, let's just say it's not going to be blood they find on his sword. And knowing Pastor Spell, there's going to be video. All right, coming up on both the Micro and Magnum Savage Lovecast this week, Dr. Stacy Dillon comes back on the show to talk about COVID precautions and bachelorette parties. And on the Magnum, author Mark Haskell joins me to talk about his fascinating and hugely entertaining new book, Rude Talk in Athens. All that coming up on this week's Lovecast. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth. I am calling today with a success story. I started recently seeing a man who's in an open relationship with his wife. She has a boyfriend and he was looking for somebody to fulfill his sexual needs. We ended up matching and chatting and having like a really great sexting session first and then met up that following weekend for a date. And the date was really nice, and we had some really fantastic sex. But one of the things that drew me to him originally is that he is into shibari. And I've been wanting to be tied for a really long time. And so last night, he tied me in a really intricate way. He tied both my legs and then my hands to my legs. And it was so hot just having him like put this rope around my body and hear the rasping of the rope. And he then proceeded to fuck me and finish me off in like the most fantastic orgasm I think I've had in years. Just like 
so intense. I can't even describe how intense it was. I had heard about like the feelings after being tied. You feel really kind of emotional and slightly vulnerable. And I definitely had those feelings. And after we came, he he very quickly untied me and then just held me for like 15 minutes. And, oh, man, Dan, like, if you haven't been tied yet, guys, go find yourself a rigger who's also a magnificent lover. It is just the best. I'd like to co-endorse finding riggers, that's people who are really good at bondage, people who are skilled at rope bondage, who are also terrific lovers. Congrats to you both. I'm so glad you guys found each other and enjoyed each other. Thank you for sharing your sex success story with my listeners. Listeners, if you'd like your sex success story to kick off next week's Savage Lovecast, give us a call, share. Hi, Dan. I live with my family in Central America. And we have sent our kids to a sweet little private community school. They've been super supportive and and loved and no bullying and their whole lives. So now my 15-year-old, he's in a very safe space and he has been uh, exploring his sexuality and gender roles by dressing like a girl in our community, um, to school, in our house. And there's been a series of of, of tough conversations that we've been having around that in our own home. But again, he's, he feels safe to do it and, and, and we are loving and supportive and kind. For quite a while, we've been planning to send him to live in the United States in Colorado with my in-laws in a very white Christian suburb of Denver. So, so he can have this uh, foreign exchange experience, big American high school, the whole thing already was going to blow his mind. I am feeling increasingly more uncomfortable about that decision, considering that he is behaving this way or he is in the process of coming out. I want him to be around us if he is. I want him to feel supportive, to have his friends. And I also recognize that it's already a lot to ask. Uh, My in-laws here take my moody-ass 15-year-old teenage son but, oh, by the way, he might be coming out, or if he's not, he's into cross-dressing. So <laughs> I, 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 I don't know what we should do, because at the same time, saying no to him, I, I don't want him to feel that he's being punished. I don't want to send the message to the family that because he's gay, he, he can't go and have this experience. Um, but I also worry about his mental well-being. I worry about his physical safety he walked home the other day from the beach alone wearing a miniskirt. And I was like, you can't do that. And he called me a transphobic, homophobic boomer, which I'm none of those things. But I, I know that violence against trans people is still real, regardless of this bubble he slipped in. So I'm not sure how to move forward. I've, I've felt confident and comfortable in my parenting this whole time. And now having a teenager has rocked my world. If I had been asked to guess what would be a safer place for a gender nonconforming, possibly gay, 15-year-old assigned male at birth child, I probably would have guessed a suburb of a big city in Colorado over just about anywhere in Central America, but that may just be my own cultural prejudice showing. If you feel your son is safer where you are now, 
you might want to err on the side of keeping him where you are right now. But you're going to have to let your son participate in this decision. And to make the decision for it to be a fully informed decision, I think you need to involve your in-laws. How much time have you spent in what you describe as a very Christian suburb? Are we talking about a suburb of Denver? Are we talking about a suburb of Colorado Springs, which to me just seems like a suburb of a suburb? But to suburb of Denver, what resources are available at the school your son might be attending for this American high school experience he would like to have? Does it have a GSA, a, what we used to call a gay-straight alliance, now we call a gender and sexuality alliance? What are the policies? What are the programs at the school to serve and protect kids like your son, kids who are or may be queer, kids who are exploring their gender identity so they can be themselves and be safe? There's a risk of violence. There are people out there in the world who are violently transphobic, violently homophobic. Telling your son that, warning your son about that is not to be transphobic or homophobic yourself. And you can tell him, I said so. You aren't endorsing transphobia and homophobia. You aren't telling him not to be himself. You're just worried for his safety because some people are terrible. Some people everywhere, some people in big cities, some people in suburbs in Colorado, some people in Central America, some people everywhere are awful. And your son might want to think about the awful people out there. And this is always an issue. Don't tell women not to like get drunk in a bar and walk home. Tell men not to rape. Okay, we will tell men not to rape. But there are some men who may take advantage, even if we tell all men not to rape, of a, a woman who's incapacitated, which unfortunately, until we've changed men and made the world safe for incapacitated women at all times, women are going to have to take into account, are going to have to factor into their calculus, their own safety, because there are some awful men out there. Well, your son, if he's going to wear dresses and skirts and be a gender nonconforming, queer presenting kid, is going to have to give a little bit more thought to safety then a more gender-conforming 15-year-old boy, wherever he might be, would have to. That's not mom or Dan, me, endorsing violent homophobia or violent transphobia. It's a shame that he has to think about it, but it's a reality that he will have to think about it. It is a shame that a woman can't go to the bathroom in a bar and leave her drink unattended for a moment. It's a shame a woman can't turn her back on her drink for a split second without having to worry about someone slipping a date rape drug into it. But a woman has to worry. And women are well advised not to leave their drinks unattended in bars. Your son is well advised by his mother and by me to think about his safety when he's walking home from the beach in a miniskirt. Anyway, involve your son in this conversation, in this decision. Also involve your in-laws. If you get on the phone with them and you get your son on the phone with them and they themselves are homophobic or transphobic bigots, if it's not a coincidence they happen to live in a hyper-conservative Christian suburb of Colorado City, that might be something your son wants to take into account before he decides to go through with this plan. You may be surprised, though, to hear that even in a suburb, even in suburb of Colorado City, perhaps, that there are other queer kids that your in-laws might know these other queer kids and might know of or be able to track down resources, even in their area, for queer kids so that your son, 
even though he won't exist in a bubble where he's 100% protected at any moment of his life from bigotry and potential violence, he will at least have support and have resources and have other people out there that he will feel safe with in or out of that miniskirt. Hey, Dan and Nancy and the tech savvy at-risk youth. My issue started 14 years ago with my stepdad repeatedly molesting me. After I came out about this trauma to my family, my mother denied it, most of it, and is still married to that man today. Flash forward to this upcoming fall, my stepbrother, who is my abuser's son, is getting married. My stepbrother and I have a great relationship, and he is the only sibling that is interested in being involved in my life. I'm so happy for him and his fiance. I would love nothing more than to attend his quaint backyard wedding across the country, but of course, my mom and stepdad will be there. There have been many instances in the past where I have been forced into situations with my stepdad after the truth about his abuse was out in the open. My mom has said things to me along the lines of, you can't keep us apart, and I'm sorry he invaded your privacy and I didn't handle it how you wanted me to. Needless to say, my mom lives in an alternate reality regarding the nature of our family and its past. I have had to hold boundaries with her so many times, the last of which I asked for her to please leave the mention of my stepdad out of all of our conversations. This is something I've had to ask of her over and over again, and finally she seems to be respecting it, only because I threatened her with an ultimatum that our communication would end if she couldn't respect this boundary. Dan, how do I set ultra-firm boundaries with my mom for the wedding? And then, how do I enjoy myself at this wedding with an abuser in the corner? Honestly, I don't see how it would be possible for you to enjoy yourself at this wedding. To enjoy yourself, you have to be able to relax, and you're not going to be able to relax at this wedding. I'm really sorry that this happened to you. I'm sorry that you were betrayed in the way that you were betrayed by your mother. And I'm sorry that 14 years later, you're still having to fight this battle. And it's wonderful that you have a relationship with your stepbrother. And I can't imagine it was an easy choice. If your stepbrother is really a good and decent and kind and loving person and has been on your side, I can't imagine it was an easy choice for him to invite his own father to his own fucking wedding, his own father that he knows abused his stepsister, someone that he loved that had to have been, I hope it was, hard on him. But here we are. You're invited. Your stepfather is invited. You get to make a choice about whether you're going to go. You say you would love to be there. Well, I think you should call your stepbrother and ask him how he's going to feel if you can't be there for your own mental health, not asking him to revisit the decision about the invite list, about inviting his father, but just to ask him how he'll feel if it's not in you, if you can't come. And you worry that if you do come, it will traumatize you. And even if you get through the day in one piece, it'll be a distraction for your stepbrother. And see what he says. Maybe there's an accommodation here where there is an hour when your stepfather will be asked to leave, sent on a beer run if it's a backyard wedding, and you can drop by in that hour and say hello, and then take off. And perhaps the next day you can get together with your stepbrother and his new wife to congratulate them and to spend some relaxing quality time with them that you might actually enjoy. But the question you put to me, how can you enjoy yourself at this wedding? I don't think you can 
enjoy yourself at this wedding. I also don't think you're obligated to go to this wedding. And if you do go, I think you need to negotiate terms, not with your mother. Fuck your mother. She sounds awful and nearly useless, but with your stepbrother that you love and that you're close to and who has been your ally. Talk with him about how to handle this, about how you might be accommodated at the wedding. Perhaps the idea I suggested, perhaps he'll have an idea. So you feel safe enough where you will be able to relax enough to enjoy a little bit of the day, 45 minutes if you take my suggestion. And if not, then don't go. Don't go. Prioritize your mental health. Send your best wishes. Don't send a broken toaster. If you like your stepbrother, send an actual gift. And then swing through town a couple of weeks later to see your stepbrother, to maintain that relationship, and maybe enjoy a slice of cake if they can pop one in the freezer for you. Hi, Dan. I'm a non-binary, asexual 20-something, and I've managed to find myself a girlfriend. <laughs> or the, My partner is also non-binary. And the, the problem is, obviously, I'm asexual or maybe demisexual. Who knows? And my partner is, has been very nice about it, and we've, we've gone very slow. The problem is that they, they obviously want to go further and would be open to that. And maybe I'm also open to that. But I'm just so awkward. <laughs> I don't, I have no idea how to broach the topic with them or how to say, I want you to go down on me. I know you say to communicate, but how do I do it in not such an overly awkward way? I, lo I love listening to the show, and as an ace person, I find it very all very fascinating, if not applicable to myself. But I now that I'm finally dealing with it in my personal life, I, I realize I have no charm. What do you mean you have no charm? Your call, your question, what you just put to me. I was thoroughly charmed. You're asexual. You're on the asexuality spectrum. If you're thinking about and excited about the prospect of your new girlfriend – or your new NB friend going down on you, then maybe you're a bit more in the gray ace category or maybe a demisexual. Maybe it took this kind of connection to awaken sexual desire in you. But if you're thinking about wanting to ask your new partner to go down on you, all right, ask them. You asked me how to ask them. It seems to me that if you can ask a stranger with a podcast – this question, if you can force the words out of your mouth, talking with me, knowing that all of my listeners were going to hear you say that, you should be able to say those words aloud to your partner. And if you can't bring yourself to say them out loud to your partner, just play the show, make them sit down and listen to the Savage Lovecast with you. And hopefully your NB new partner, hopefully they'll recognize your voice and they'll hear how charming the request was how charming your ask is, how charming you are. Yeah, it's awkward, but don't assume that awkward doesn't mean something can't be charming, that something can't be enticing or arousing. It is awkward for you as somebody who's identified all this time as asexual and probably still is asexual. But don't assume that just because you haven't done this before and you're not going to be some I don't know, slick asexual Lothario when you ask that you're not going to have the moves means you won't be appealing. Your partner, your new envy friend is attracted to who you are 
And who you are around sex is inexperienced and who you are around sex is awkward. And yeah, that's not necessarily off-putting. I was not put off, not that you asked me to go down on you, but I was not put off by your call or your question. To the contrary, I found you very charming. And I have to assume your new NB friend obviously is charmed by you since they're dating you, as you are charmed by them since you're dating them. So just make them listen to the show with you. If you can't bring yourself to ask, you ask me to ask them, which is kind of bank shot asking them. Seems to me you should be able to ask them yourself. But if you can't, just press play. Hey, Dan, female living in the Bay Area. I'm calling about this kind of dilemma that I'm having. My biggest fear is my partner cheating. And I keep fantasizing when I'm masturbating him and another woman and him kind of looking at a woman like he looks at me when we're having sex. And it's really putting a wrench in my relationship with him and further confirming my fears, like looking for things to validate that fantasy. And it's like ruining my self-esteem. And actually there's no real way right now for us to act on that fantasy. And I don't want to really give him the wrong idea when we're dirty talking. And I've kind of explored that with him when he's getting me off. And I quickly was like, this is great in this confined space, but not really in, in real life. And I think he got a little bit bummed about that, which I don't think is cool, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. You say your boyfriend cheating on you, sleeping with somebody else, looking at another woman the way he looks at you, touching another woman the way he touches you with the tip of his penis, is your biggest fear and also your go-to fantasy when you masturbate, which I would take as a sign that your erotic imagination is wrestling with this fear and trying to turn the lemons of these insecurities about your boyfriend cheating on you into the lemonade of something hot and horny that you could one day perhaps share with your partner. So I was shocked when I continued to listen to your call and heard that you'd already shared this with your partner, that this wasn't something that you were contemplating privately, masturbating about, and then worrying about when you saw him or slept with him. But this was something that you were engaging with him about during dirty talk when you two were having sex. That seems to me to have moved you out of the, this is something that you fantasize about, but would never want to happen to something that you're contemplating perhaps someday doing with your boyfriend. And that would seem to be perhaps the impression that you've given your boyfriend, or maybe it's equal parts you giving him that impression because of your willingness to go there in dirty talk and his own dickful thinking around getting to sleep with you and also sleep with other women with your okay. And that being something, if you were truly a cuck queen, that being something that wouldn't get him in trouble because you would be mad, but that would get him a gold star because you would enjoy it. If I had a time machine and I could really use one, if there's anyone out there working on time machines, please get in touch. I might show up at your place before you had shared this fantasy with your boyfriend and pull you into the time machine with you and take you back to that time before you shared this fantasy with your boyfriend and encourage you not to share this fantasy with your boyfriend, but to enjoy it privately until you felt 
a little more secure with the fantasy or a little more secure in this relationship after your erotic imagination had more time to really process and in some ways contain this fantasy, which is rooted in a fear as so many of our fantasies are. So you know how the Christians will tell people to pray on it? I might have told you not to talk about it with your boyfriend, but to masturbate on it some more. Masturbating on it some more, getting more and more comfortable with fantasies that may be rooted in our deepest fears or our biggest fears doesn't guarantee that you or anyone else will invariably get to a place where you feel secure enough to want to share or act on that fantasy. Some fantasies remain fantasies and our imaginations are the only places we feel safe exploring them. Could be the case here. But I think if you masturbated about it some more, I think you might get there. But right now, you need to take it off the table. You need to take it out of the dirty talk rotation with the boyfriend. And you need to tell the boyfriend that obviously this is something that you think about and fantasize about. But if he ever hopes that you're going to get there, he needs to stop asking about it. He needs to put it out of mind, stuff it down the memory hole, and you will let him know. For sure, you will let him know if you get there, if you get to a place where you want to tentatively and baby steps begin to explore your cuck queen fantasies with him. And those tentative baby steps around cuckolding fantasies or cuck queen fantasies, of course, are you don't go to full-on intercourse with another woman in front of you the very first time. You go out with your boyfriend, watch him flirt or dance with somebody else. Now that flirting or dancing in public is getting to be a thing again. And then if that goes well, you go out and watch him make out with somebody else. And then you two go home alone together. See how that feels. You don't have to jump in with both feet. Take those baby steps. Cuckolding is a big pool. Don't jump in to the deep end right at the start. You want to tiptoe into it at the shallow end. Once you're ready, and I'm not saying you're ready, I think you need to shut up about it with the boyfriend for a while. I think you need to spend more time masturbating about it and thinking about it and give your erotic imagination a little bit more time to get a grip on it, to contain it, to make it something that you can take out and play with and enjoy without it sandpapering your insecurities. Hi, Dan. I am in my 30s. I live in the Hawaiian Islands. And I'm calling with your favorite, um, a wedding question. A dear friend of mine is getting married and I love her and I love her husband. And I'm so excited about their wedding. They're doing like a fairly small thing in a beach park and it's going to be great and outdoors and perfect. I'm a bridesmaid. They have had to like cancel and reschedule this wedding multiple times due to the COVID pandemic as well as an ill parent. And I'm excited that they finally figured out um, when it's going to happen and all that. My friend is wants to plan this bachelorette party that would require us flying to a different island that we live in kind of a rural place. And this would be like a place where there's like a town and a nightlife and she wants to like go clubbing and partying and all that. I'm vaccinated. She's vaccinated. I think most of her bridesmaids, uh, if not all, are vaccinated. But this is typically some, normally something I probably wouldn't be excited about, but I would do. But like with the pandemic, it feels still soon to be going out to a club and a bar, even though they're open and popping. Like it makes me feel uncomfortable. And I can't tell if that is just because I don't like that scene in general or if, if it's because of COVID. And it's been so long since I've been in that environment. But I work in a school and I feel like that is a fair amount of exposure 
as it is. And I try not to really do a lot of risky things beyond that. Am I just being like hypervigilant or like, is it safe to go out clubbing for your friend's bachelorette party? Returning to the show to help me tackle this question, Dr. Stacy DeLynn, board certified gynecologist and family planning specialist and COVID science communicator. Follow her for the latest news and updates on COVID at Stacy DeLynn underscore MD on Instagram. I'm sorry, not Twitter, Instagram. Hey, Stacy, how are you doing? Good. Thanks so much for having me back on. Uh, thank you for coming back on. So her, her question is, you know, in a nutshell, is it safe to go out clubbing? Clubs are full. New York, New York State has reopened fully. California has reopened fully. We're at more than 70% of vaccination in Seattle. And my husband was in a gay bar last week. Uh, so that seems mm-hmm. like normal life returning. Nature is healing. Is it safe for, for her to attend this bachelor party? Well, like I want to point out that she has something she can feel really relieved about. She's fully vaccinated, which provides her enormous protection against infection from COVID. Um, I'm guessing that she said it was in Hawaii. So most of the bars are going to be open air. And we know that open air venues are really important in preventing the spread of COVID-19 in any population, whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. I, I think the number one question that I get from people right now, like, is X some certain activity safe? And I know we got this guidance from the CDC that said, if you're vaccinated, you can pretty much do anything now. So like on a population level, they're correct. Vaccinated people as a whole are absolutely able to move around the world in a much safer way. But we also know that these vaccines, while they're highly effective, they're not absolutely perfect. So while they're highly effective against hospitalization and death, especially with some of the variants present, you can still get symptomatic illness. You can also potentially pass some virus to others. We don't know how much virus it takes to infect others. So we're operating with like a lot of gray areas still. So to ask like, is X safe? There's not really an answer to that. So instead we're all just stuck in this annoying risk assessment state where we have to say what's safer. So like I mentioned, outdoors is great for reducing risk. And a venue which asks for proof of vaccination to enter is incredibly safe. That's like the gold standard. Um, with those things missing, knowing case rates in your area, um, the New York Times has a great guide to transmission risk in each county across the country. But like, as I'm saying this, I know those are a lot of things for people to think about. And maybe you're someone who, once you were fully vaccinated, when you heard the new CDC recs, you ran to the busiest bar as soon as you could. And like, again, on a population level, you're probably fine. We, we really do see case rates dropping incredibly in vaccinated populations. But like for the rest of us, I also just really, really want to normalize saying no in this, particularly, in this particular anxiety-inducing period. Like, and I don't think that she has to justify her decision by explaining anything about open air or case rates. Like if she just doesn't feel good about going to a bar, it's entirely reasonable for her to say, I'm just not ready for that level of risk. Not just going to a bar, but getting on a plane to go to a bar. Right. And and there's so, you know, there's all these pieces involved with travel and these venues, like the pandemic is not over. And We've also been through an enormous amount of trauma this year. Like we all wanted to get back to our quote normal lives, like these joyous wedding events, of course, but also, you know, 600,000 of our fellow citizens are dead and the virus is still circulating. So 
I think all of us really need to feel comfortable and secure in setting boundaries around what we feel comfortable doing and then just kind of making those incremental changes around activity when we feel ready. I think the key here is that the caller says she is not excited about it, that a bachelorette party is not something she would, even if it wasn't a time of pandemic or we're coming out of a pandemic, hopefully not something she would attend. And she has a great get out of bachelorette party free card here. <laughs> in that, yeah, absolutely. In that like it's an act of self-care to say, although the CDC has said, although bars and clubs perhaps in California, New York are full, I'm not comfortable getting on that plane, although it is true that there hasn't been many uh, cases traced to airplanes. Airplanes seem to be, because of the circulation, pretty safe places, not as safe as an open-air bar, perhaps, but there hasn't been mm -hmm. infections, a number of them traced to airplanes. Am, am I correct in saying that? I believe I read that. Correct. So the airplanes themselves um, are, uh, you know, they have really great air circulation, like they talked about that ventilation. It's great. But there's also all these other pieces involved in travel, like um, waiting in a TSA line, like loading onto the plane to get on, on the tarmac. Like there are a lot of pieces associated with travel that that are higher risk, particularly people who are unvaccinated or immunocompromised, um, you know, whatever your status is. And it is possible, as we saw with Bill Maher, for someone to be vaccinated and to be exposed to COVID and infected and possibly then pass that on. So it's not just, I would say to the caller, uh, if you're worried about making excuses to the bride who put you on the vital team, it's not just the <laughs> other people at the party, all of whom may be vaccinated, that could be at risk. If you have family or friends who haven't been vaccinated yet, hopefully they will be soon. Hopefully they're not fucking mm -hmm. morons. Um, you okay. being at this party, even with all these vaccinated people around, maybe one or two other people who aren't vaccinated or a vaccinated person who like Bill Maher somehow got infected, which is a risk still for vaccinated people. You could take that home to mm -hmm. someone at your school, to someone who's immunocompromised, who hasn't been vaccinated yet. And, and so there are Excuses you could make here, caller, to the bride that are a thousand percent valid. Absolutely. Yeah, those CDC recommendations, they left a lot of people behind. Like you mentioned, people who are immunocompromised, those vaccines don't work as well for, for them. Um, the entire population of kids who aren't vaccinated, so people who have children at home, um, people for socioeconomic reasons haven't had the time to take two days off of work and maybe an extra day to recover from side effects from the vaccine. So we are, our decisions need to be really mindful of those people as well. And those, again, those broad CDC recommendations didn't take those um, folks into support. And I think that it's really, you know, protecting those people is yet another reason that she can use to not engage these activities that feel particularly risky to her. Okay, just to, to make this personal, let's say, despite being like queer, you were invited to a bachelorette <laughs> party in a bar that you had to fly to. Would you, Dr. Stacy Dillon, COVID science communicator, would you go to that bachelorette party? Yeah, so people ask me this a lot um, of what my level of risk is. You know, I, I think that flying on a plane um, is safe with, if you're fully vaccinated, as long as you stay masked in the airport and Airports are continuing to endure uh, federally. They're still required to re require universal mask wearing. I personally, uh, in places where uh, many people are unmasked, where case rates uh, can be higher and uh, you don't know the vaccination status of others, I'm still avoiding those areas. And so vaccination has afforded me an incredible amount of freedom um, in that I'm spending time with groups of my fully vaccinated friends that I'm doing open air dining, um, open air activities, those sorts of things. But um, close uh, up 
close interactions with people who may not be vaccinated with masks off is in the higher risk category. And so my level of risk is that I'm comfortable avoiding those situations. But it, ha- it has been flexing a muscle to be able to tell friends, you know, I'm really sorry. I- I'm not ready for crowded indoor dining right now. Um, and getting comfortable with the idea that I don't have to justify that to anybody and neither does the caller. So you would be a no on that bachelorette party invite? I would be a no. I, the, the open air wedding sounds great or or an open air, you know, an open air bar sounds okay. Um, but I think I like the caller, I'm a bachelorette party doesn't sound that fun to me either. So I think she can feel comfortable using whatever she wants to not go. <laughs> Dr. Stacey DeLynn, board certified gynecologist, family planning specialist, and COVID science communicator. If you want the most up-to-date information coming to you in a fun and accessible way on your Instagram account, follow Dr. DeLynn at Stacey DeLynn underscore MD on Instagram. Thank you so much, Stacey. It was a real pleasure chatting with you again. Thanks, Dan. You too. Take care. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old woman on the East Coast calling because I'm having trouble orgasming. I can orgasm, but only with my legs straight and my knees locked. I've tried different toys. I've tried exploring with different positions. I've tried just getting myself used to um, masturbating in different positions, but... It uh, never works unless my knees are locked. I can come with a partner, but again, it has to be with my knees locked, my legs straight, and that gets pretty frustrating because that means that I'm not moving if I want to have an orgasm. So anything but missionary really doesn't work. When you lock your knees and put your legs straight, hold your legs in that position straight out, you're tensing a lot of muscles in the lower part of your body, tensing your lower abs, tensing your quads, probably tensing your buttocks as well. And all of that is putting pressure, is bearing down on clitoral tissues and perhaps positioning your the glands of the clitoris, the exposed part of the clitoris, in the ideal spot where intercourse, you say this is something that works for you, this position during missionary position sex, where your clit is positioned in such a way that it's getting the stimulation it needs, it's being pushed out, thrust forward, for you to climax during missionary position sex. The ability to climax during that kind of intercourse, during PIV, is something that only roughly 25% of women can do. Most women require additional focused stimulation to the clitoris uh, in place of PIV or during PIV. And there you are giving it to yourself during PIV and you're able to climax from just PIV alone if you're in this position with a partner. And rather than regarding that as some tragedy, maybe you should regard that as kind of a superpower. I can see why you might be frustrated. You can have orgasms. You enjoy your orgasms. You'd like to be able to climax in different positions not just with a partner, but also during masturbation. I would encourage you to read The Corgasm Workout by Frequent Savage Lovecast guest, Dr. Debbie Herbenick. There might be some advice in there that would help you find new ways to strengthen and tense up the parts of your body that you associate, that kind of tension that you associate with orgasm that's carved such a deep groove in you. I would also encourage you, you say you've tried exploring with different positions I wonder, I would have called you back if you'd left a phone number, but you didn't. When you've tried exploring, when you've used toys and you've tried to climax in different positions, 
did you try and try and try during one masturbation session, decide you were never going to get there and then revert to the position that worked for you in order to climax during that masturbation session? If you tried, that's what you did. If you tried and you bailed and you came and then you tried and you bailed and you came, that isn't the way out of this corner that your body has kind of painted itself into. What you need to do is try and try and try. And if you don't come, you don't come. And then try again later. Enjoy the sensations. Enjoy the stimulation that you can give yourself during a masturbation session that feels good without being so focused on climaxing during that session and just really relax. Pay attention to your body. You also might want to pick up Dr. Lori Brodo's book, Frequent Lovecast Guest, Dr. Lori Brodo, Better Sex Through Mindfulness. What you want to do is be really present in that moment. And if you don't come, you don't come and you will live to masturbate another day. And what you're trying to do is really send a message to your reptile brain, send a message to your body that if it wants to climax and it does, it's going to have to adapt. You know, there are a lot of guys out there with what I've called death grip syndrome who masturbate with a certain intensity of grip that no mouth, anus, vagina can ever provide. And the way out for those guys is to masturbate using more lube and a lighter grip, perhaps uh, fleshlight, different toys. And if they don't come, they don't come during that discrete masturbatory session. And they have to build up and it can take three to six months of really kind of starving the body out before, I don't want to anthropomorphize everyone's genitals, but before the dick says, Jesus Christ, gives up and learns to climax in a new way. And I've heard from women who've taken the same approach and it's worked for them too. This is all anecdote. This is not data. I'd love for there to be some research in this area, but I've heard it so often from people who've attempted my approach to retraining the body that I'm confident it can work, but you're going to have to stick with it. All that said, the caveat I always give, sometimes there's no amount of work you can do that's going to change this, but you got to do the work for three to six months to figure out if that's where you're at. And then you have to accept that this is how your genitals work and how your body works. But right now, my assignment for you, explore with different positions alone, masturbating, explore with positions that provide the kind of lower body tension without having to be in that exact same position with your legs straight out and your knees locked that you associate with the ability to climax, explore with different positions, masturbate, get as close as you can. And if you can't get all the way there, take a deep breath, put the toy away, try again in a couple of days and keep trying and keep trying and keep trying. And fingers crossed, you'll get there. But if you don't, not such a tragedy. You can climax. There's a position that works for you. You can do 12 other positions before you shift to the position in the end that works for you. There are worse fates. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with Mark Haskell-Smith. He's the author of eight books, including the novels Moist and Blown and Naked at Lunch. His latest, his new book, is Rude Talk in Athens, Ancient Rivals, The Birth of Comedy, and A Writer's Journey Through Greece. Hey, Mark, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. This may seem like a bit of a reach for listeners before we get into the interview, before we get into the conversation that we're talking about ancient Greece on my Sex and Relationship Advice podcast. But as it turns out, we didn't invent sex yesterday. 
everybody thinks that their generation invented sex, boomers, zoomers, Gen Z, millennials. Your book on ancient Greece, in addition to being perhaps one of the most entertaining reads about classical civilization I've ever had the pleasure of reading, is fucking filthy. <laughs> well, they had... The, the ancients had a much more um, open uh, idea about sexuality and sex practices and what they did. And basically in ancient Athens, it was all about getting it off, getting off uh, whenever and however and as often as you could, including public masturbation, um, gay sex, straight sex, sex with prostitutes, everything except – Showing yourself to be submissive to a woman because women were definitely second-class citizens. Yeah, we don't want to make ancient Athens or ancient Greece sound like an egalitarian society. It wasn't. It was a slave system, and it was very deeply patriarchal. Your book really focuses on the rivalry between two ancient playwrights, both uh, comedians, one whose work comes down to us, Aristophanes. Uh, and it's because Aristophanes' work comes down to us that we know about, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, so please correct me, Ariphrates? Ariphrates, I think, is the – it would be the American way of saying it, yeah. So what is it that we know about Ariphrates thanks to Aristophanes and how much Aristophanes loathed Ariphrates? <laughs> I know. That's the thing. And in, in Of the 11 surviving plays by uh, Aristophanes, there's like five of them have um, – sort of just trash-talking Ariphrates because, according to Aristophanes, he invented cunnilingus. <laughs> <laughs> and, and at that time, to, to put yourself in a submissive position to a woman, it was, was a, a betrayal of all the Athenian ideals of what a, a man should be. Now, the Athenians invented, as you write in the book, comedy. They invented uh, representative democracy. Why were the Athenians so mad at Ariphrates for, and we're kind of joking here, surely someone before the 5th century uh, BC ate pussy. But why were the Athenians, who were so inventive in other areas, so mad at Ariphrates for inventing cunnilingus? Because, you know, it's, it's funny because the, the, the thing is, at that time, that was to pleasure a woman would be uh, transgressive sex, right? It actually threatened the patriarchy where the whole establishment of their society was the man is the boss, the penetrator is the, is the winner, and the penetratee is, is either, you know, a slave or sort of, I don't know, a lower class of person. They don't really have any rights. And so for era, era, to do that was basically sort of saying a big fuck you to the patriarchy and to the status quo of the time. And people couldn't wrap their heads around perhaps Ariphrates was taking pleasure and giving pleasure. That wasn't yet a place that people's ideas about sex had progressed. Not at all. I mean, yeah, that was one of the things that Aristophanes in his plays keeps mocking him for. It's like, and you enjoy it. You do this, you lick the flute girls in the brothels, and you like it. So there's a straight line from Ariphrates uh, and the shit being kicked out of him in these plays. And was it not just Aristophanes? Were there other playwrights who made fun of Ariphrates as well? You know, we can only guess because there's only fragments that survive. And in a couple of fragments of other uh, playwrights of the time, they do mention uh, Ariphrates as, you know, this sort of uh, louche and libertine kind of link tour of the, <laughs> of the of the era. 
But there, there seems to be a straight line from Ariphrates in ancient Athens and Aristophanes' plays to Uncle Junior in The Sopranos. Did you watch The Sopranos? I, I, I've seen some of The Sopranos. I was not a... <laughs> I was not a devotee, as they say. But. There's a plot line in The Sopranos where it gets out that Uncle Junior, who's Tony Soprano's uncle and a mob boss in his own right, it gets out that he eats his girlfriend's pussy and his social status, his stock falls. It imperils his position on the top of this mafioso sort of food chain because he's eating the wrong thing, because he's pleasuring a woman and that is emasculating and regarded as slightly gay. Right. And where did this I, it's such a weird thing. Like, where did this idea come from? Like, it's like the mafia is extremely patriarchal. Right. Um, lots. And let, let's face it. Our society is still extremely patriarchal. So the idea of pleasuring a woman, of, of going down on someone is somehow kinky or or well, I want to think of like politically you're you're you're, I don't know, debasing, you're, you're emasculating yourself or something. It's just, for me, it's just completely ludicrous. I mean, I, I love eating pussy. So <laughs> as you, as you mentioned in the book, um, zoom, <laughs> zooming out for a second, you dis, you, you describe, you, you define the word symposium, but then you go on to describe what a symposium actually was. And of course, people may be familiar, if not with the actual text, the, you know, the name Plato's Symposium. And it's sort of, it sounds weighty, a bunch of Greek philosophers standing around, you know, college lecture, an extended college lecture. But the way you describe it and unpack it, a bunch of writers, playwrights, philosophers together in a room, getting plastered and tearing into each other. The culture, as you describe it, sounds a lot more like a symposium sounds more like a drunken comedy central roast or every comedian's podcast playing at the same time than a university lecture. Yeah, the academia really ruined the word, right? They're like symposiums are so boring. It's just people droning on about presenting a paper or something. And so when I saw that, that you know, the word is actually the original Greek word means basically drinking together. So they were really about you know, talking, uh, talking about like philosophy or poetry or politics of the day or what, you know, whatever they wanted to talk about, but sharing wine. And then there were also, you know, sex workers there, flute girls who would, you know, play some songs and provide like sort of happy finishes for people. And, and they were really like the original, uh, like the original man cave or the original rave. But, uh, <laughs> but they were very male centric, like, Wives and girlfriends were, of course, ex completely excluded. It is a, a sad fact that, that, that you document in your book that the first mentions we have in recorded human history of Cunnilingus is a man being insulted for enjoying it. That Cunnilingus yeah. is mentioned in the, in the plays of Aristophanes. It's the first mention. It's before the Kama Sutra. There's nothing in sort of ancient Chinese literature uh, that sometimes talks about sex about Cunnilingus. The very first things we have in recorded human history – disparaging yeah no he's considered he's called out and you have to remember the the way the plays were back then everyone in the city was there right Ariphrates would be sitting in the audience when when the, the plays would stop at a certain point and they would just like start making they would roast people they would make fun of them and he was c called out like repeatedly over a period of 30 years in these various plays for for doing this, and it was like his dirty, sloppy ways, and the the way he he licks up the abominable dew of prostitutes and the brothels and all this stuff. I mean, at the, his I wet mean, beard, 
his wet oh yeah his beard was like that was the thing don't share a cup of wine with him because his beard is soaked with you know the juices of women and uh, i mean <laughs> it's uh i mean it's it's so extreme i mean in a way that's what made me want to write the book it's like where is this coming from what what causes someone to call someone out for what we consider just you know being a good partner yeah, uh, oral, I like to say, comes standard now. And any model that arrives without oral should be immediately returned to the lot. Sometimes people think I'm just talking about sucking dick or women giving blowjobs. I'm talking both ways when I when I say that. Oral comes standard. Women have a right to expect, I think, from their sex partners, be they male or female or envy, oral sex. And it's it really is standard now. And it's funny, if you look at you know re- more recent literature – Oral was considered kinky. Oral was this auteur out there thing that some people got into. Um, John Updike wrote a book, Rabbit Run. The whole plot hinges on somebody performing an act of oral sex. And this is so transgressive and transformative that it alters the course of a person's life. And you scratch your head reading this book now, uh, reading Rabbit Run. And you scratch your head. And it's just – it's such a sad indictment. Of, of of patriarchy and how it stigmatizes female pleasure and centering female pleasure and has for millennia, which is what I found so fascinating about your book uh, and, and so engaging. Yeah. I mean, even I was actually, so the way academics would approach these plays and these, this calling out of Aerophrates for eating pussy over the decades was, you know, they would basically condemn him. Like what, you know, a horrible person, what a libertine, what is it? And even a book that a translation that came out just last year, the, the author said, well, uh, Aerophrate is someone who deserved this kind of condemnation. And I was like, really, dude, are you, are you kidding me? This, this is like, we're condemning him. I mean, what your, I really want to say to these academics, what is your home life like? Because this is just kind of depressing. <laughs> <laughs> How did you stumble over this topic? Well, I, good question. Because I was, I was wanted to write a book about the history of pleasure, and starting with kind of uh, Epicurus, who has gotten a bad rap over the years because he was a, actually a very interesting visionary philosopher. He was not a gourmand and a snob like he gets, you know, portrayed now. And so, in the course of doing that, I came across one mention of a of this uh you know play where this aristophanes play where he says don't share your wine cup with Aerophrates because he's been his beard is soiled with the abominable dew of flute girls and i was like well wait a second <laughs> that sounds pretty interesting and so then the more i dug into it and like why was someone castigated why would someone be like uh, considered a you know um immoral person a transgressive person or someone who's not uh part of the sort of Athenian patriarchy, not a real citizen of the city just for doing that. And the more I looked into it and you start to understand how the city works and how their culture was at the time, um, it just, this, this whole idea, this whole, it, it's a strange book, I admit. And so it was just, this whole thing just came to me and I got obsessed. I couldn't stop thinking about it or digging into it and writing about it. And, and, uh, you know, and now I'm glad I did. Uh, I'm really glad you did too. Um, it really kind of cracked open, uh, ancient Greece culturally for me. And, you know, I've done a lot, I have a theater background. I've read a lot of these plays. I read Aristophanes in college. Nobody highlighted this. I probably just blazed right by it without realizing what the insult meant. And 
I was just so thrilled and engaged by your book. And for people out there listening to us, it's not just about ancient Greece. It's also kind of a travelogue and a portrait of modern Greece. And you have this way of unpacking the culture uh, of Greece, both ancient and modern, that is just just so delightful. And I was so thrilled to to get this book and to read this book that I had to talk to you. Oh, thanks, man. One last question before I let you go. Ariphrates was a very prominent playwright and a, wrote comedies, was a competitor of Aristophanes in these contests. None of his work survived. What is it like as a writer to try to write about a writer, none of whose writing you can actually read? Yeah, it's like it just brings up that whole thing about like, for, I think for any artist or anyone, it's like, what is your legacy? What what are you leaving behind? Why do you do the work you do? Right. Like, so for, for, for me reading about Ariphrates or studying Ariphrates and most of those, there were other famous playwrights and really funny writers that well, there's fragments of some mentions of others. And I think that because Ariphrates was basically eradicated, I think the Catholic church had a lot to do with that of like, you know, if something is really transgressive, they just burned it. Right. Yeah, it's hard not to imagine that some of his plays mounted a defense of his sexual practices. And that may be why they don't come down to us or why they were eradicated or destroyed. If he's getting the shit kicked out of him on stage regularly twice a year in Athens for eating pussy, but he's also writing and performing his own plays, I imagine he went after his critics about their sex lives, but also made a defense of his own, made a defense of eating pussy that's lost to us. Yeah, I mean, those guys, all those older playwrights in the fragments, they are just tearing the shit out of each other. Um, it, that's why I call the book Rude Talk, because they because you have to remember comedy springs from from it was the first time they had uh, democracy and people were actually allowed to say whatever they wanted. Right. And so these playwrights got up and they said whatever they wanted and they just basically you know, flamed everything um, and everyone they could who bothered them or 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 even if they just, just for a laugh. So it was like a really interesting time, certainly the opposite of what we're living through now, like with Twitter and everyone being canceled or whatever, you know, you write in your book that uh, comedy has power, perhaps even the power to save democracy. Do you think comedy can save ours? Cause things seem pretty perilous right now for us. <laughs> I don't know what else we got, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what's left. They take away the vote. At least we can make fun of them, right? <laughs> Mark Haskell-Smith, author of eight books, including Moist and Blown and Naked at Lunch, a couple of novels, and his new book, Rude Talk in Athens, Ancient Rivals, The Birth of Comedy and a Writer's Journey Through Greece. Pick it up. It is terrific. Even if you have only, as I do, an academic interest in cunnilingus, it is a terrific and hilarious read. Mark, thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. I really yeah. appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. This has been really fun. Hi, Dan. I'm calling with a pride question. Um, I'm a cis, hetero female in the Midwest. I am identifying as a demi-asexual, and I'm in a polyamorous relationship. Um, my husband and partner and meta are all effectively, you know, pretty much regularly identifying heterosexual, um, with the exception of my meta, who I believe uh, identifies as pan. But otherwise, we're pretty much, you know, we can represent as straight and out and about. And all of that as a, you know, fairly, you know, male, female, male, female poly structure. My question is, how does polyamory structure into pride, if at all? Um, there's been a lot of debate in some of the online communities. And I understand that polyamory is not necessarily considered a sexuality. 
But at the same time, I have a hard time reconciling the fact that I identify more as being off the you know beaten path with my polyamory than I ever did identifying as ace, which is, you know, A is in LGBTQIA. So, you know, how does that reconcile? And, you know, we, we still struggle in a lot of the same ways as queer identifying people and that, you know, I've had to, you know, break my own heart and identify one of my partners as a friend in the same way that gay people may have had to do with their partners and things like that. Obviously, you know, polyamorous people, while we um, can face some discrimination in certain places, you know, it's very obvious that we don't do it in such the same way as, or violent ways as gay and trans. So that's where I can, you know, see, again, it doesn't really qualify as sexuality, but I don't know, kind of rambling, just curious on your thoughts on the matter. I don't know what to tell you. If you try to draw a line, if you try to say pride encompasses this group, but not that group, you get accused of gatekeeping. But if you don't draw a line or no lines are visible or acknowledged, then pride or what constitutes the queer community can seem to become amorphous or meaningless. That said, some people believe that polyamory is a sexual orientation and a minority sexual orientation. Polyamorous people do sometimes face discrimination. Polyamorous people have their own closet, as you experience, that you struggle with, that you may have to come out of eventually. And sometimes when polyamorous people come out of their polyamorous closets, sometimes when cishet poly people come out of their cishet polyamorous closets, they face discrimination, they face job loss, they faced losing their children in custody disputes, they faced real oppression. Does that make cishet polyamorous people members of the queer community? Well, I guess not. If you define queer as not cis and not het, then no. But it certainly, I would hope, makes polyamorous cishet people capable of empathizing with queer people, capable of identifying with queer people. You point to the A, asexual, in the ever-expanding acronym as encompassing you. Well, some people include P, polyamorous, in the longest versions of those acronyms. There's also A for ally. A is in the acronym in the longest versions of the acronym twice. And it seems to me that if nothing else, a cishet polyamorous person qualifies or more than qualifies under the A for ally letter in the acronym because a cishet polyamorous person has had experiences that make them really understand and sympathize with what queer people go through. Other people with marginalized identities around their sexuality or their gender expression, more thoroughly, completely, historically marginalized identities. But, you know, where do I come down on all of this? The more people who identify as queer, the better. Trying to gatekeep is exhausting. Also exhausting, sometimes meeting people who claim for themselves all of the historic oppression that gays, lesbians, bi, and trans folks have faced because their mom didn't like it when they found out that they were in an open relationship. To equate those two things, to equate the experiences of, you know, gay adults who were estranged from their families for decades or all their lives or lost their jobs or lost their lives with 
having an awkward conversation with a coworker one time or having to introduce one of your opposite sex partners as a friend because you were invested in appearing to be monogamous socially, even if you weren't monogamous sexually or monogamous emotionally, you're polyamorous. Those kinds of comparisons for a lot of gay people, myself included, can seem to trivialize what gay, lesbian, bi, trans people have gone through. That said, I don't want to trivialize what polyamorous people often go through, just as I think a polyamorous is that person who has faced discrimination or judgment or shaming should be able to empathize with what gays and lesbians and bi and trans people have been put through for millennia. I can empathize as a gay person with what a polyamorous person who's a cishet may have gone through, may have faced. When you say that there was a moment where you had to introduce a partner as a friend and that cut you to the core, I get it. I understand. I had to do that myself too when I was 15 years old, 16 years old, 17 years old, when I was a little bit older and made the mistake of dating somebody who was a closet case. I went through that too. So I empathize, but I'm also capable of seeing these things in their relative scales and keeping things in perspective and proper proportion, as it seems to me you can and you are, but you are welcome at pride. You are welcome at the pride parade. You say you identify as asexual or on the asexuality spectrum. You're in. Welcome. Some people's pride banners include colors for polyamorous people, and many people who are poly identify their polyamory as a bedrock part of their sexual orientation, or indeed their sexual orientation, their relationship orientation as a kind of sexual orientation. Welcome. No one's going to frog march you out of pride, and if anyone at a pride event or in a queer space wants to argue with you about whether you belong Turn your back on them. Walk the fuck away from them. You don't have to win the argument. You don't have to convince everyone at Pride that you belong at Pride to be at Pride. I just opened the show a couple of weeks ago with some people who are going to Pride arguing that kinksters don't belong at Pride and shouldn't be at Pride, even though kinksters have been at Pride and belonged at Pride since the start. There's always some debate, it seems. A useless, futile debate about who can or can't go to Pride, who is welcome, who isn't welcome at Pride. You know who's welcome at Pride? Anybody who shows the fuck up. So show the fuck up at Pride, and then you're a part of it. Hi, Dan. Uh, late 20s, by cis woman here in the Midwest. I just had a question about appropriating LGBT language. So I can't remember, I can't point to exact times on your show, but I feel like I remember picking up the terms top and bottom on your show, like in the sense of when you talk about bottoming from the top and all that kind of thing. And it refers more to people's sexual roles rather than position. So I have some male partners where the roles are flipped. I like to peg them and dom them and things like that. So sometimes I think of our relationships in terms of topping and bottoming. Um, we've had consent conversations where we explicitly use that phrase, top, bottoming from the top. So I was describing my sexual dynamic with some of these partners to a friend. And he said, basically, wait, no, 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 you can't appropriate that term. Top and bottom is a term that refers to gay sex position only. So I apologized. I felt terrible. Now I'm taking it upon myself to educate myself because I obviously need to do that. 
And I've been reading a lot of stuff online that seemed to say the same thing. So I was like, okay, great. I'm going to strike that from my language. I'm going to do better moving forward. But then last week I heard Dr. Justin Lay Miller reference the new topping book and the new bottoming book. So what do I need to know? So are these terms a little more subjective? Are there nuances to them? Are they interchangeable for dom and sub? Humbly here, please help me out if there's any insight you can give. Look, if gays and lesbians could appropriate the terms husband and wife from straight people, I think we just need to fucking relax about the term top and bottom. The terms top and bottom or topping and bottoming, which were never exclusively ours to begin with. People into BDSM, people into kink have been using those expressions for probably as long as gay men have been using them. Gay men didn't always describe the, the relative positions during anal sex as topping and bottoming. Didn't use those terms forever. It used to be active and passive. You were Greek active. That meant you were the person fucking or you were Greek passive. That meant you were the person getting fucked. French active meant you were the person giving the blowjob. French passive meant you were the person getting the blowjob. Those were the terms you saw all over gay personal ads in the 60s and the 70s into the 80s. It wasn't until really the mid 80s or 90s that topping and bottoming took off, not just as descriptors, but for some problematically as identities. People into kink, gay and straight and bi, have been using those terms forever, for just as long, if not longer, than gay men have been using those terms. And even if gay men were the only ones who had ever used those terms and we had come up with them ourselves, we took husband from the straights. So I think it's fine for the straights or the bi's or people in opposite sex relationships to use top and bottom. Your mistake was not using topping and bottoming in a perfectly appropriate way, in a perfectly legitimate way to describe your sexual activities and your relationships. Your mistake was saying that you were doing that in front of that fucking asshole who gave you such grief about it. I want you to get out of the defensive crouch you're in. I want you to stop apologizing. I want you to stop promising to do. Of course, we should all endeavor to do better wherever we can, but you don't need to do better here. You were doing fine. You weren't doing anything wrong. The only thing you may have done wrong was you may have erred in your selection of friends. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some tweets. Blue Monker tweets, it's so wild that people in loving relationships can put each other's genitals in their mouths, but can't speak to each other about the things they want or need or finances or marriage. Thanks to people like at Fake Dan Savage and podcasts like the Savage Lovecast for helping out. You are welcome. And bonus pro tip from the Savage Lovecast, it is a good idea, best practices, only polite, to remove your partner's genitals from your mouth before talking finances or marriage. Rosemary North tweets, Dan Savage and the listeners of the Savage Lovecast might enjoy this. The this Rosemary refers to is a story in The Guardian about the mixed messages being sent to Olympic athletes by the Tokyo Olympic Committee. Organizers have forbidden any sexual contact between athletes to avoid COVID transmission, but they are passing out 160,000 condoms to those same athletes to take home, organizers say, as souvenirs. So don't worry if you don't meddle, guys. You're not going home empty-handed. And finally, a Nikki Thomas tweets at fake Dan Savage. There's a huge thing about how DC won't let the creators on Harley Quinn show Batman going down on Catwoman. And yes, it's a big deal. 
because we should normalize sex and sexuality and not shame it or shroud it in mystery. Well, Nikki, it would be hypocritical of me to start caring about superhero movies now after decades of not giving a shit about superhero movies. But I agree. It is fucked up that DC Comics execs reportedly nixed a scene with Batman eating Catwoman's pussy because, and I quote from the Entertainment Weekly report, heroes don't do that. Famous Greek playwrights weren't supposed to do that then. Superheroes aren't supposed to do that now, which means we haven't made any progress on this front in 2,500 years. Man, is that depressing. All right. Thanks to everyone who posted about the show to your social media accounts this week. We really appreciate it. And if you want me to read your tweet on next week's Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now, listener response calls. Hi, Dan. My comments are in relation to episode 764 with the male caller who's close friends with the single woman who's in love with a married man. I'm a retired therapist, and this woman's constant exposure to the highs of hope and then the crashing losses can cause changes in brain chemistry very similar to changes experienced with addiction. Over the four years, she has experienced surges of dopamine and then intense grief over and over. I understand your comments and agree that this friend needs to take himself a step away from this friendship, but I suggest that prior to him distancing himself that he recommend that his friend find a very competent therapist. In chemical addiction, alcohol, heroin, etc., there's enormous support available in society to addicts. There's rehab, there's 12-step programs. But being addicted to being in love with somebody unavailable, there's really nowhere to go. And cutting off a supportive friend can throw the person into really unbearable loss. So telling this kind friend to throw a box of Band-Aids at this woman and walk out of her life is comparable to throwing a bag of kale at a heroin addict. A good friend would help lead the addict to some help. This is a response for the woman who called in about having the dreams that about other people that she wasn't sure she should share with her partner or not. My husband and I have a very similar relationship where that is definitely something I would normally tell him. And he is similarly insecure about those things, sometimes about particular people that I sometimes have dreams about. And what I've started doing to test the waters is sometimes I will tell him about the dream, but I will replace you know, whoever the person is with like one of my favorite celebrities that he knows that I am very into. And that way it kind of takes that reality factor or like potential insecurity kind of out of it because it's not like that's ever going to happen. And that's kind of my little way of getting around, you know, his, his insecurity. So that could be something you could do. This is a response to the lady on episode 764 asking about furries. It's kind of best to think about it as two fandoms one sexual and one non-sexual. Especially for fursuiters, the suits themselves are so expensive and difficult to clean that most fursuits are not made for having sex. So at a convention, probably 90% of the fursuiters you'll see, their suits are completely non-sexual. And anyone wearing pants with a fursuit is a decent indication that there might be a hole cut in front for something else to happen. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064 and leave a message. 
or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment about this week's show and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. On Thursday, July 1st at noon Pacific time, I will be hosting another Sack Lunch exclusively for Savage Lovecast Magnum subscribers. If you're a Magnum subscriber, you don't need to do anything. We will send out a meeting link to everyone that Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific time. If you're not yet a Magnum subscriber, head to savagelovecast.com and become one. You will enjoy all access, ad-free episodes, exclusive content, and an invitation to these monthly get-togethers with me. Space is limited, so make sure to hit the Sack Lunch link right at me. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Mark Haskell Smith on Twitter at Nkurtido. That's E-N-C-U-R-T-I-D-O. And also pre-order Rude Talk in Athens now. It is really, really terrific. Follow Stacy Delin on Instagram at Stacy Delin underscore MD. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.